Today's TribCast is presented by the Communities Foundation of Texas. Contact giving experts at Communities Foundation of Texas for tax-wise charitable giving solutions, to gift appreciated assets, or to set up a fund before year-end. Learn more at cftexas.org. And Houston First. Houston is art, tourism, entertainment, conventions, hospitality. Learn more at houstonfirst.com. Texas talking, oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking, ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are in Texas guys Hello, this is Trey Blocker, conservative candidate for Texas Agriculture Commissioner and connoisseur of Nutella Banana Crepes. I hope you enjoy this week's TribCast. And now, here's your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on the second Wednesday in December with your Texas Tribune TribCast, our weekly podcast on the biggest stories in Texas politics. I'm joined today by CEO Evan Smith. You know, you have me next to somebody who has been known to carry a gun. Uh, yes, uh, uh, he's even brought humongous yes. guns you into the Texas and your question office. Is? Well, my, this is a concern. Well, my, no, I don't have a question. I just want you to kind of scare the crap out of me. That's all. No, I, I have to tell you, I don't. I didn't see any stinking signs on this building. So, yeah, you can make a good assumption. <laughs> that voice that you probably recognize oh, is former God. and aspiring Texas Land Commissioner Jerry Patterson. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. I have got uh, reporter Kia Collier. Hello. And I also have our uh, political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Shouldn't you ask him if he's packing? I'm sure he's packing. <laughs> Don't you know him? Oh, well, yes, this is I why mean, I'm... I, you know, like didn't go whack his ankles on my way in here. But well, I'm, you know, my policy is I'll show you mine if you'll show me yours, and I don't know who else is packing either. So uh, the number of reporters who have a gun on them in this room is probably zero. I'm just this is just a suspicion. I don't know. Maybe I Bobby, come in Bobby peace. Blanchard. I come in peace. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you come in peace, except when it comes to George P. Bush. Right, and we're going to start off by talking about that. We're actually I know everybody wants to talk about the Alabama Senate race. We're going to wait and do that in the were second you, were half. Were you a Roy Moore supporter? Hang on, Evan, no. Who, who moderates? <laughs> but I would have voted for him all. as uh, kind of like a bitter pill to swallow. Yes, I would have voted for him. All right. So, Jerry, for everyone anticipating a quiet end to the 2018 filing period, uh, you came in and kicked the hornet's nest, announcing that you're running to reclaim your land commissioner seat. Uh, tell us what's wrong with the incumbent, George P. Bush. Well, there, I don't think there's anything wrong with the incumbent personally. I mean, I think George P. Bush is a, a, a nice gentleman. Uh, however, there are two glaring issues that have been grossly mishandled and allowed to fester. Uh, one of them is the Alamo, and the other one, which is going to make, I think, even more news than the Alamo, is the Hurricane Harvey response. And uh, I have no interest in a job. I mean, I'm retired, happily retired. I'm doing documentary movies. You know, I've got my Marine Corps retirement, my state retirement. I'm, I like life. Life is good. But I've watched this. I've tried to find another opponent for about four months, was unsuccessful in that endeavor, and decided that, well, you're the guy. So you were trying to recruit other people to run against George Peter. Yes. And did you endorse him the first time around? You know, I'm pretty sure I did. Uh, if I didn't, I would have. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, and frankly, when, when uh, Commissioner Bush came and visited prior to his uh, filing, I, I thought the gentleman, nice guy, you know, a good heart, uh, you good intentions. around the office, I remember, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we spent some time in the archives. Yeah. And I, you know, I recognize that he knows nothing. He's inexperienced. But he, he and I had conversations. He was going to keep the knowledgeable help my deputy uh, number one guy larry lane and others 
Uh, and there's nothing wrong with knowing nothing, but there is something wrong with not knowing you know nothing and then hiring people that also know nothing. And that's what's happened. So he wasn't a subject matter expert, but typically you mitigate that by putting subject matter experts in the room with you. Yeah. And, and you and think he didn't do that? Uh, no. I mean, he clearly didn't. I mean, uh, uh, we had subject matter experts. For example, uh, we made a, a quite a few mistakes in our uh, Hurricane Ike uh, efforts that was dropped in our lap in January of 2009, taken away from two other state agencies. The governor calls me up and says, Hey, can you take this over? I said, yes, sir, we'll take it over. And then we made mistakes and we learned from them. And by the time that I had left, and even before that, we had a team of disaster recovery experts that knew what they were doing, did it well, and had benefited from learning FEMA and HUD talk, which is really difficult language to learn. Within six months, uh, 12 personnel out of disaster recovery were gone. I would say at least eight of them were key personnel. And that experience, that corporate knowledge, boom, it's gone. Did well, he fire those people or did they leave I, them I would say uh, about half were fired and the other half left knowing they would be fired. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a really good roll-the-dice gamble to save money and look like you're a small government Republican unless you have a Harvey. Right. He's really been touting his response to Harvey. Like, how specifically do you think he's botched response? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, in 2016, there was a very big flood in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And um, they had a program there called PREPS. It's an acronym, but it basically gets people's houses habitable, uh, power, uh, shelter, electricity and everything works and you get to move back in your house instead of staying in a hotel which is currently costing us about 2.8 million dollars a day so that preps program implemented uh, in Baton Rouge had 5,000 people in homes by this time after that storm after that flood we have zero preps homes repairs done so far there's another program called dollar it's d-a-h-l-r direct assistance housing limited recovery that gets people back in their homes uh, and subsequent full-time full full repairs occur later uh, so far we have two but we have a great many press conferences photo ops and press releases delivering keys to people when the t uh, when the trailer is delivered by fema not by the land office so it's not about looking good <laughs> you know, so, well, yeah. so what do you think your chances are? I mean, obviously, he has a lot more money in the bank. He has probably the best name ID of anybody up or down the, the ballot. Uh, is that, that why you sort of waited till the last minute to throw in here? No, I waited till the last minute because I was hoping somebody else would do it, you know. And uh, But well, what I are my chances? You, you shaved your retirement mustache there at the end. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's just, that was when I knew you were serious. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you, you know, what are our chances? I think we're leading. <laughs> And you, he, I, was, I will agree with you. You think you're leading? Yeah. Do you have I, any evidence of that? No. Uh, I said, I think. Uh, <laughs> so, exactly. I'm not, even I'm not used to a, the candidates for office coming in here and thinking in front of us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, well, I'll stop that. But, yeah. no, and you mentioned, I suspect uh, Commissioner Bush has 100% name ID. Absolutely. It's not an advantage anymore, and that's really unfortunate because I know I've been around uh, HW, you know, 41, 43 uh, I like them. I served with 43. Uh, I'm essentially the, the 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 gentleman H.W. Bush is one of those people you look at who's iconic in their class. I mean, as being a class person. Uh, but it, and it's unfortunate that the Bush name is a liability, not an asset now. 
considering the history of well, why, why do you think that yeah, is? Yeah, I mean, why? Uh, you know, it's it's basically to some extent shopworn. I mean, it's been around for a while. It's like Clinton. It's like all those names. You know, we're tired of all these those names. You don't have that problem with me. Uh, and the other thing is, it's the aftermath of the uh, presidential primary campaign. Uh, you know, and it's the aftermath of, uh, you know, comments made by 41 or 43 about uh, our, the president. Uh, and it's just fatigue. I don't know that that bad association with that name, it, it's, it's not earned. You think it's he's fatigued. conservative enough? It is often said that it is hard for people named Bush other than George P. in Texas to win a Republican primary these days. That if you ran George H.W. Bush as we knew him or George W. Bush as we knew him with the politics that they ran on when they ran, in today's Republican Party, it'd be hard for them to win a primary. You know, you, you, when you have never cast a vote in anger, kind of hard to be labeled as conservative or liberal or moderate or whatever and so what we have is a gentleman who has says he's the most conservative arguably land commissioner ever based on formulaic republican responses you don't think he's a conservative you know i don't know uh, but there's you, in, to be a conservative a true conservative or a true anything you have to make hard choices you have to have you know gut punch charge uh, hard choices to make there have been none made uh, except the look good ones. I'm going to fire X number of people so I can look good by reducing uh, FTEs and, and my payroll. When in, and then you hire a bunch of more people. I mean, you look at the articles by Brian Rosenthal of the Chronicle about the Patrick's purge. Patrick's former roommate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Well, you look at those articles about uh, hiring family and uh, campaign staff and all of that to replace the smart and experienced hands that were fired. You think that was those were accurate articles? Uh, yeah, yeah. Were you a source for those articles? Uh, you know, I, people, I think you're quoted yeah. in some of them, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, when we have the commissioner in a 100-day press conference tout the reboot and tout transparency, how's that working in the Alamo 501c3s right now after the Republican Party of Texas rebuked him 57-1? And the Senate Finance Committee basically said, you better do this. In five minutes later, he's telling the press that I, he's going to take it under advisement. I mean, I'm sorry. Well, I want to switch gears to talking okay. about the Alabama yeah. Senate race. But uh, first, if you're listening to this Tribcast on iTunes, please take a second to review us and subscribe. Here's a recent review from a gentleman who is always involved, but whose name I'm not sure I'm pronouncing right. So let me know. Iosa Elegon, who says the Texas Tribune Tribcast is the one thing I look forward to every week. This Tribcast delivers content in a professional manner. That's when Evan is off the Tribcast. <laughs> that was just mine, non sequitur. With an appropriate balance of eccentricity I adore all right so uh, questions coming in on Facebook Rachel wants to know Jerry how do you reconcile supporting more with the accusations against him it's kind of like uh, Shane Kai-shek and Mao Zedong making hard choices to unite and fight the Japanese in 1937 sometimes you have bitter pills you have to swallow should have figured there was gonna be some kind of like war analogy <laughs> you believe, coming you believe in. Moore's accusers uh, I think there's a credible, you know, yeah, I think they're credible. Uh, but, you know, we, here's the deal you got to think about. And when, when the Jones comes out and says he supports uh, right to choose through nine months of pregnancy, uh, then you had Republicans who had fled more. You know, uh, you go, uh, I can't, I can't get there. So uh, we well, got a guy. 20,000 people wrote in Nick Saban. People made other really? choices. Yeah, you know. yeah. Well, here's, here's the deal. He's going to be a two-year senator. Isn't that how much term, time is left? Two to three years, yeah. Two, right. Yeah, he's yeah. going to be a two-year senator. You're looking at votes. 
uh, whether it's on tax bill, whether it's on uh, confirmations, whatever it may be, you're looking at those votes. So sometimes you just have to hold your nose and do what you think is the better of two bad choices. Well, Evan, who rarely makes accurate predictions, actually did predict the outcome. <laughs> well, and the reason the reason is that not with I mean, I hear Commissioner Patterson and I heard the county chair in Alabama who said I'd rather vote for Roy Moore than a Democrat because in his he said at least uh, Roy Moore only effed children. Democrats eff everybody. This is what the this is what this that's a good one. Mensa member said in Alabama. Um, Mensa member. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I I said that in the end, uh, not to sound not to go all Lee Greenwood on you, but I believe in America, and my belief was that in the America that is in my mind at least, Roy Moore doesn't get elected based on the charges. Now, if you believe the accusers, but you still support support Roy Moore, then you're making a choice. I get that. You're, you're making a gut punch, you're making you know, a choice. gut check choice that you are concerned about judicial appointments, Supreme Court appointments, right. uh, tax bills, things of that but nature. But presumably there's a line. If Jeffrey Dahmer were running as a Republican in Alabama <laughs> against Doug Jones, you wouldn't vote for Jeffrey Dahmer just because of the Supreme Court, would you? Well, we hope he didn't make it out of the primary. <laughs> the, these days, candidly, no guarantees. Right. No guarantees. I don't know. But, I mean, if, you know, if for voters the issue, like for you, Jerry, is, is abortion, I mean, I, that might be a choice that people are making, you know, predator versus, you know, Well, more than 600,000 people, I believe, voted for, for Roy Moore yesterday, and it was in part because of what the calculation yeah, Jerry yeah. just articulated. Yeah. There are certain issues that are more important to me. I mean, it, I mean, there are people who, uh, understandably, and, and, and including myself, that uh, believe that life begins before your birthday. And to them, you had a guy who, and I, th I don't really think this Jones guy believes that. I think he's just a brand new candidate. But when he says he supports a right to choose through nine months of pregnancy, that's third trimester abortion. I mean, that's like, whoa, okay. You know, maybe I can be, you know, maybe someone's thinking maybe they can go either way or they understand different positions. But when you go to that extreme, I just think Jones was not very uh, sharp of candidate. And he probably really doesn't mean that. But nonetheless, he said it. Right. So what does this mean, if anything? I know everybody wants to sort of read the tea leaves for Texas. I mean, you know, what does this mean politically, Patrick? Like, you know, sure. could people be thinking well, this could happen to Beto O'Rourke? Well, Beto yeah. jumped on that panel yeah. last night. <laughs> right. What kind of calculus? I don't see too many direct parallels between the Senate race there and the Senate race here. I do think that the um, the outcome last night at least adds to this growing sense of democratic enthusiasm and momentum across the country, um, you know, that we're also seeing in Texas. Obviously, you know, one of the previous building blocks of that momentum and enthusiasm was what happened in Virginia several weeks ago. And in some ways, I'd, I'd argue that if you have to pick between whether Alabama and Virginia have more to, you know, more to do with Texas, I'd probably say Virginia. Um, but I think this what what could be the impact and what is going to be the impact on the U.S. Senate race here in Texas is it it really puts the uh, the race uh, on the table for the, the battle for the Senate majority in 2018. So now Republicans in the U.S. Senate only have a, a very thin uh, one-member majority. And so this means that Texas becomes more of a pickup opportunity or a more urgent pickup opportunity to Democrats in 2018 if they want to have any chance of flipping control of the Senate. And I think that that's an argument that helps both Cruz and, and O'Rourke. O'Rourke, for the longest time, has been saying Texas is the second best pickup opportunity for Democrats in 2018, presumably behind Nevada. Um, I think but, Arizona's better than and, or, Yeah, and some people at this point, that, based but. on candidate quality, think or, recruitment think Arizona could be ahead of the line there. Um, but this gives Cruz an argument to, to, you know, 
keep his supporters from being um, complacent and says, look, like, you know, this race could determine whether uh, Chuck Schumer is, is majority leader, which I think he's already said uh, publicly. And for O'Rourke, it obviously gives him the argument to say that this race is more in, in, in reach than ever. What, yeah. what, what yeah. would the what would the, the takeaways legitimately be from Virginia and Alabama is the Democratic turnout has been up in a way that in these kinds of elections, typically you would not see it. And in minority voter turnout. I mean, for people who look at Texas and this, you know, argument, whether you believe it or not, about the sleeping giant of, you know, Latino voters in Texas that they believe would skew Democratic, right. you know, could there be a trend line like that, like they saw among African-American voters in Alabama? Theoretically, black voters were the difference maker for Jones mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in Alabama. Wasn't it like more than Obama? More of them right. turned out to vote right. than they did 20, for Obama? 29% yeah. turnout among the African-American uh, yeah. uh, uh, of the total was right. African-American. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I thought voter turnout in Alabama topped a million, where you know in, even in the 2016 presidential election, it was about 2 million, which is pretty, pretty, a pretty stunning right. mobilization. And, and Trump's effort. margin in Alabama in 2016 was something like 28%. Trump's margin in Texas in 2016 was 9%. And so people were saying, well, if a Democrat can win in a state that Donald Trump won less than a year ago or a year ago, a little more than a year ago, pardon me, by 28%, shouldn't that make Texas a competitive race? Mm -hmm. I just don't think that the it doesn't align the same way. No, the circumstances on no. the ground are different. But, but the Democrats also fielded a remarkable number of candidates by filing deadline this cycle. Here in Texas, you mean? In Texas. A remarkable number of candidates. Are there, is it remarkable candidates or remarkable yeah. candidates? <laughs> well, well, they got well, the quantity the, for now. Quality remains to be seen. They're breathing and they have pulses, which makes it a very different cycle than previous cycles in which the Democrats were putting up cardboard yeah, cutouts. And, yeah. Well, let's talk know. about some of those. Just And just a reminder that if you're joining us on Facebook or Twitter, please send your questions in our way. We're going to try to get to them. Um, tell us who were the surprises, other than Jerry, who landed in the final days of the filing period to sort of shake things up, particularly on the Democratic side? Yeah, one of the more interesting ones was former State Representative Norma Chavez uh, announced that she's going to be running for Beto O'Rourke's seat in Congress. Come on, Jerry, don't you love <laughs> that nor the return of Norma Chavez? You know, parent? I like Norma. She was fun, and she was funny, and she had a lot of interest in yeah. history. It was, right, and, and she would punch yeah. you in the face as soon as look at you. That's yeah. true. An, ex an expert texter. <laughs> also, <laughs> also famous for her texts. She right. has the potential to shake up that race. So far, that, there's been several Democratic candidates in that primary, uh, but it's really focused on two candidates, Veronica Escobar, the former El Paso County judge and Dory Fennenbach, the former El Paso school board president. They've been kind of the two front runners in that primary. Uh, both have gotten notable endorsements. Uh, Steny Hoyer endorsed Escobar just a, a day after the filing deadline, Steny Hoyer being the uh, member of House Democratic leadership in Washington. Um, I think, you know, Chavez really has, a, you know, I don't think she's necessarily jumps in as a front runner, uh, but really has, uh, you know, the potential to shake up the dynamic between those two leading candidates. And so probably far. relatively good name ID in that district. Yeah, I mean, look, that, that's that's the, the, well, she, the she represented the area for what uh, more than a decade. A long time. Look, the, the the it's Veronica Escobar's race to lose if if you believe the the tea leaves uh, and the people who yak about this stuff, but. Look, we have a lot of competitive primaries in a lot of races. I, I interviewed Jason Isaac yesterday, the state representative from Dripping Springs, at an event we did down in uh, San Marcos, and I, I was shocked to discover that in his race for Lamar Smith's congressional seat, he is one of 17 or 18 yeah. Republican candidates yeah. to file. It's a I, Cecil B. DeMille epic. There yeah. can't be <laughs> another race in the country with that yeah. many candidates in the primary. Yeah, right? what's notable too in that primary field is 
at least you know ten of those, those of those are candidates are real. They're named are real real people, right? Um, who are running real, real campaigns. Yeah. yeah. Well, not like you know people who file every time and are just gadflies. Right. I mean, they're yeah. actual people who, under normal circumstances, might be a significant candidate across the board on the congressional races. Well, for one thing, the Democrats have candidates in every single congressional race for the first time in ages. Long time, yeah. But beyond that, both Republicans and Democrats. Up and down the ballot, there are a lot of candidates running. We yeah. complain all the time about how there are never competitive elections, how this is so boring. It is not going to be boring this time. Yeah, now, right. except, except for the statewide elections. Once you yeah. get into and I November. think I think what's important about what the, the right. Texas Democrats are doing again, you can make an argument about whether the quality of these candidates remains to be seen, but they have the quantity and they're putting the players in place that they need in case there is a blue wave, as some people are anticipating, that would even reach into into right. Texas. And Jerry Jerry has made the land commissioner race interesting. Trey Blocker has made the ag commissioner well, race uh, interesting. Not just Trey Blocker. I'm yeah. pumped about. I'm pumped about Jim Hogan. The getting of Jim back Hogan <laughs> running as a Republican, which running is like, as a, he was the Democratic nominee last time around. I was telling Jerry, showed up at our office with a giant stack of, you know, lined yellow uh, legal pad paper where he had written in handwriting his sort of treatise for why he should like be Ted land Kaczynski. commissioner. <laughs> it <laughs> right. was Ted Kaczynski light. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, yes. Yes, Jerry. It's okay. I didn't want to say that it's, very loud. No, no, it's cool. He can, we, we lawyer this yeah. podcast before we, we it goes also, out. Right. We also ended Kidding. the filing period with 10 total Democratic candidates for governor. Um, right. Which, Again, <laughs> that that is certainly one of the fields where quality versus quantity is going to be. Uh, exactly. Right. One no, on Republican side. Yeah, yeah. Mary Kilgore is back. Now, who is notable? Let's just play a quick game. So, who's notable in their lack of primary opponents? Yeah. Who escaped primary opponents? Yeah. Like Ken Paxton? Oh, Ken Paxton is obviously yeah. the most yeah. prominent example. He's been uh, under indictment on securities fraud charges right. for most of his first term, I think since the summer of his first year in office, and he didn't draw a single primary challenger. There's a, He has at least one Democratic opponent waiting for him in the general election. Um, but pretty but remarkable. It is remarkable that he has yeah, to and I, you know. I mean, how is that even possible? I mean, how, I, does, that's George, a great how does George <laughs> P. I, I Bush know. end up with a challenge, primary yeah, challenger? And multiple yeah. primary challengers. I, I think, well, because one yeah. is vulnerable. I don't think Paxton's vulnerable. And yeah. frankly, I don't think that he's going to, at the end of the day, I think all these charges go away because I don't know that they're credible and I'm not Yeah, I think for him to have drawn a credible primary challenger, you know, in the Republican primary for uh, attorney general, right. it, it's not just the case against him wouldn't have just had to be, you know, he's under indictment. He's the state's top, uh, you know, lawyer. This looks really bad. I think there would have had to been an argument against him that this is distracting him from doing his job, from fighting for the conservative values and principles he pledged to fight for when he was first elected. And I think that his his office and his political team have done a decent job of keeping him in the spotlight, keeping him aligned with Trump on a lot of these early legal issues. And I, I don't think you can credibly make the case based on public appearances alone there may be more behind the scenes that he's been distracted from doing his job. Well, the reality is case. he has a primary opponent, and his primary opponent's name is Philip Huffines. Right. Yeah, right. right, yeah. I mean, in many respects, Philip Huffine's running against Pat's oh, okay. wife for the Senate. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's yeah. a proxy war. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I, I mean, think, it, I think uh, she wins that. Too. The, the Paxton brand is uh, is being challenged mm -hmm. by Philip Huffman. Right. What, is, what was Ross asking? Like, who will get more more GOP primary votes? Uh, Angela, Angela Paxton or, or Ken? And you could see <laughs> Paxton's case, wow. Paxton's Ken Paxton's legal case litigated in that state senate primary. I think you absolutely uh, would see depending that. on how competitive. Right. It Here's gets. somebody who doesn't have a primary opponent. Briscoe Kane in the membrane doesn't have a primary, <laughs> primary opponent. Right, Terry Sane was supposed to run against Briscoe Kane as a Republican candidate. Just the pun Puns potential was stop. like off the damn charts. <laughs> 
Um, but ultimately, Briscoe Cain gets no primary opponent. He's only one of 10 Republican House members who do not have um, uh, 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 opponents, primary or general. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, this concept of run every race that both parties have to some degree. Redistricting has made it so that the general elections in this state are largely non-competitive. But there are a lot of races in which we do have general elections uh, this time. Um, and in most cases, there are interesting primaries, even in, in cases where the incumbent is likely to win. But there are a couple of people who got by. Joaquin Castro is another example. We're back to Congress. Joaquin Castro has no mm-hmm. uh, right. a primary opponent. Royce West is the only senator without a primary opponent. Also, Henry Cuellar. Right. Henry Cuellar has no primary mm-hmm. opponent. But it's, it, it's, it's rarer. At least they're a nuisance primary opponents yeah. if they're not That's, serious. While we're talking about last-minute filings, Kane, member of the House Freedom Caucus, avoided a primary challenge last minute. His challenger dropped out during the weekend, or withdrew from the race during the weekend. One of the more interesting last-minute filings was another member of the House Freedom Caucus, Mike Lang, first-term Republican. Oh, he got a superintendent. Right? Yeah, a superintendent. Right. Granbury superintendent, uh, From right? his district announced at the last minute against him, and, and that could, you know, just, just well, based on the prominence Well, the education people have pledged to make this, from Scott right. Milder challenging Dan Patrick gone down, they pledged to make this a big uh, education year from an election standpoint, whether or not they get any traction. Right. All right. Well, I'm excited to have uh, Kia here, who's been working on a really huge project for us with ProPublica the last couple of months. She's going to give us a super sneak preview of a project called The Taking. Uh, It's a project set against the backdrop of Donald Trump's designs on more border wall. And it's a look at what happened to Texas in 2007. Who was Uh, land commissioner in 2007? I believe it was Jerry Patterson, <laughs> uh, but he yeah, wasn't involved in this. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it was the last time fe- the federal government, you know, headed down to South Texas property owners to sort of try to seize land for their border fence. So, Kia, tell us about the project and what you guys learned. Yeah, so just as a refresher, I mean, this is the fence that uh, then-President George W. Bush ordered, um, constructed. It was completed under the Obama administration. Um, Bush signed the Secure Fences Act in 2006, which ordered um, 700 miles of fence be built along the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, Congress set a deadline of December 31st, 2008. Um, That gave Homeland Security less than two years to um, issue millions of dollars of government contracts, purchase Um, I think it was 145,000 tons of steel, um, and to acquire a bunch of land. Um, Most of uh, those land seizures occurred in Texas. Um, That's because um, I think 95% of the land here is privately owned. You probably know know more about that than I do. Yeah. Um, You know, the federal government owns a lot of of border land in the other border states, New Mexico, Arizona, California. Um, So much of the land they seized um, was in Texas. Um, We examined a lot of the eminent domain lawsuits that they um, filed. We focused on about 200 in the Rio Grande Valley, where most of the land was seized. Um, And in general, what we found is just a very rushed, botched, inequitable process. Um, Wealthier, larger landowners who were able to hire attorneys got a lot more money for their land. Um, DHS waived, you know, a ton of laws um, protecting landowners and eminent domain um, proceedings. Um, They took property without knowing who owned it. Um, They paid people for their land twice. Um, When they found rightful owners, they didn't really seek to recover the money they had paid the wrongful owners. Um, So they spent more more tax dollars in than they needed to. 
Um, I mean, is this like a is this a, a cautionary tale? I mean, what tell tell me what the significance of this project landing right. right now is for landowners along the border? Right. I mean, you know, President Trump is talking about you know returning to um, Texas, the Central Rio Grande Valley, to to build the wall. A lot of the people who were <clears throat> involved in um, the construction of the Bush era border fence are now overseeing um, this process, and um, you know, we kind of viewed it as a, a warning for the future. Um, they're going to be operating under a lot of the laws that, um, you know, Homeland Security <coughs> or the federal government passed and, and waived um, to build the first sections of border fence. Um, and so, yeah, you know, that's the point of reference in all of this with, you know, talk about the wall is what happened with the fence and how do they go about doing it. And it was a pretty messy, um, rushed process. And so, Jerry, the, the Land Commission was not involved in any of this because it was federal, right? No, and right? the reason for that is, is that we, you know, the, the general land office, the Permanent School Fund assets are about 750,000 acres, and most, a lot of that is mineral but not surface. And while there were some parcels that were on the border uh, and actually on the river, they're in the parts of far west Texas where, you know, if you were to sneak across from Mexico and wade across three foot deep uh, Rio Grande, uh, about 10 feet on the Texas side, and you got to the Texas side, you're no better off than you were in, Me than you were in Mexico because the mm -hmm. terrain... I would just ask everybody to Google photo of Santa Elena Canyon, L-E-L-E-N-A, and tell me where that where they're going to cross there. Are you a pro-wall or anti-wall I'm a pro 100% border security person by whatever means necessary. Right, but I asked about the wall specifically. What are the means? About the wall specifically, there are places where you can put a wall, and it has a positive outcome in limiting ingress, you know, whatever illegal crossings absolutely but there are places and again at google santa, santa elena canyon, elena canyon. Right. look at that picture and tell me where you're going to put a wall so you'd build a wall where you could build a wall i'd, I'd build a wall where it made uh, you know tactical and strategic right. sense and Who should i'm pay a guy for it? uh the fed should pay for it our feds or mexican feds uh ours they're not mexico's not going to pay for it and, <laughs> and i'm probably the only one of the few candidates who has ever you know set up a defensive perimeter in real time, in real life, you are like a defensive perimeter. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm also known as an offensive something or other. But, but I will tell you, there are places a wall makes absolute sense. And frankly, I've never gotten it definitively out of our president when he says a wall, a big beautiful wall, is that along every linear foot of the Rio Grande on this side. I don't think so. I know he's never said that. Uh, Kia, I mean, how how likely is this to play out a second time? I mean, how many of these cases along the border were are already settled and sort of accounted for? A ton of them are still open, um, and uh, yeah, scores of them are still open, um, and that um, that kind of hits on another like huge finding of this, which um, you know we did an investigation examining dozens of cases. We also go into the history of federal eminent domain law um, and the really obscure old law um, that made this land seizure possible is called the Declaration of Taking. Um, Congress passed that um, around the time of the Great Depression to kind of jumpstart the economy, allow for the civilian conservation core projects and in theory what that law allows the federal government to do is to file a check in your bank account you know at open of business 8 a.m. for an amount they think your land is worth you know a good faith kind of effort and if a judge signs off on it the federal government can roll bulldozers by 5 p.m. on your you, land yeah. so you, you take the land now and you and you do whatever you want with it and you pay later and you know property owners can fight it but it can take years 
years, um, as we see now with mm -hmm. you know cases open 10 years later. Jerry, the final word on that before we yeah. have to wrap up. What do you think? Well, I, I think it's an interesting uh, uh, intersection between those who are extremely conservative and fearful and opposed yeah. to eminent domain, particularly f federal eminent domain, yeah. particularly mm -hmm. federal eminent domain without due process, and those that are 100% in support of uh, border security. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have. Uh, if you're excited about reading Kia's project, you can do it tomorrow at texastribune.org or at ProPublica. If you like listening to the TribCast every week, please do us a favor and leave us a review on iTunes. And if you value the Tribune's nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, please consider making a donation at support.texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music. On behalf of Evan, Patrick, Kia, Jerry, and our producers Todd and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Ooh, that Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking, baby. Texas talking. Talk, talk, baby. Texas talking. Wasn't he the guy that did Crocodile Dundee?